Well, for the last few months, we've been uh, walking through this book, 2 Timothy, and we've talked about nine men that God had used to prepare the way for the Reformation, some of which who were before the Reformation, who took the Reformation farther, and some deepened the truths of the Reformation. But the fire of the Reformation was lit by a match in the hands of Martin Luther in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther lived a large life. He lived a life that was probably as much as 10 lifetimes squeezed into one. He was born in 1483 into a world that was medieval, and it was the height of the Middle Ages, and he died in 1546 as the modern world was emerging, and much of those changes we could point to as Luther himself was a part of that. He was born in a small town, Eisleben, on November 10th, 1483, last Sunday, actually, was November 10th. He was named Martin for the simple reason that the day on which he was born was called St. Martin's Day in the Roman Catholic Church. When he was 18, his father sent him to the University of Erfurt to study law, one of Martin's favorite things to do when his schoolwork was done for the day, get this kids, this is good, okay, was to head to the library to read. One day, to his delight, there was a copy of the Latin Bible, and he was fascinated by this book and surprised by its length. He was captivated by the story of Hannah and Samuel. And he would love to have a, cop have a copy of the Bible on his own, but it seemed impossible to this young 18-year-old because books were hard to come by. Not long after this, Martin gave up his pursuit of the law degree and switched to study theology. A few things happened after this switch that would affect his life mightily. One was the sudden death of a friend whom he cared for very much. And when he heard of it, he asked himself, what would become of me if I were to die suddenly? Soon after, in the summer of 1505, while returning to school after visiting his parents, he was overtaken by a violent storm, and suddenly a lightning bolt fell almost to his feet. Overcome with fear, he dropped to his knees and prayed to St. Anne to save him. When he arose unhurt, he believed that the saint had saved him. And because of this, he decided that he would become a priest. His father was not pleased because he had worked so hard for Martin and his education and hoped that he would make himself known in the world and someday perhaps become famous. <laughs> Luther left the university and entered the monastery of the observant Augustinian friars on July 17, 1505. He would graduate and become a priest on May 2, 1507, when he was 23 years old. In 1508, he was invited by Frederick, Prince of Saxony, to move to the town of Wittenberg, Germany to become a professor of moral philosophy in the university. He would preach in chapel and soon began preaching in the town church of Wittenberg. He would preach the Bible, yet he didn't understand the gospel. God would use the next 10 years to shape and form Martin. He would be teaching the Bible in class and then wrestling with the Bible in the evening. He couldn't find any peace for his soul. Finally, a breakthrough came. Luther was studying the book of Romans, and when he came to chapter 1, verse 17, it captivated him. He finally understood. The just shall live by faith. And he saw it clearly. Salvation by faith in Christ Jesus, not by anything we can do. For years, Martin had tortured himself trying to pay for his sins through good behavior, through human merit, but never found any rest for his weary soul. But then that day, the Holy Spirit opened his eyes and he saw Jesus Christ. He saw that salvation, peace, and rest could only be found in him, that he could finally be forgiven. He understood that God wasn't an angry God, 
eager to destroy him, but a patient, loving father who sent his only son to suffer and die for the sins of his people. In Christ's righteousness, God's wrath was satisfied, and sinners who believed in Christ by the grace of the Holy Spirit were saved. And Luther was so overjoyed with this new discovery that he later wrote that he felt as if his soul went through the open gates of a heavenly paradise. Of course, the most famous singular event in his life was October 31st, 1517, Reformation Day, the day he posted his 95 theses to the castle church door. That was the beginning of his conflict with the Roman Catholic Church. It culminated in the spring of 1521 when Luther appeared before the Diet of Worms, before the emperor and princesses and the bishops and the bishops and the, the papal envoy. Here was Luther, an obscure Augustinian monk, and he took his stand there, and that's where he uttered his most famous words. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. Here I stand. And so from 1517 to 1521, this, there was a formation of Luther as he was hammering out these doctrines of sola scriptura, by scripture alone, and sola fide, by faith alone. Not only did Luther begin and start the Reformation, as it were, he was also very much involved in the organization of it. From 1521 to 1546, he was pastoring, preaching as, as much five to seven times a week there in Wittenberg, lecturing at the university, and his students would then take the message all over Europe, proclaiming the gospel. Martin's greatest friend in ministry, though, was Philip uh, Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon. He had a friendship like David and Jonathan. Philip said of his dear friend, I love Luther's studies, the sacred science he pursues, and the man himself above all that is on earth, and I embrace him with all my heart. I'd rather die than be separated from him. On one occasion, Philip became very ill, and Luther had to ride to where he was sick. When Luther saw him, he walked over and earnestly prayed for God to save his friend. He would later write, I cast my burden down before his door and besieged his ear with every promise he has made about prayer, which I recall recalled from the Holy Scripture, and then he took his friend by the hand and said, be of good cheer, my friend Philip, you will not die. Philip was very sick and tried pleading with Luther to allow him to go, to die. And he said, it cannot be, Philip. You must serve our God a little longer yet. And he recovered. He shared a very close and important friendship that produced much for the Reformation. But Martin in early 1546, wrote to a friend that he felt old, spent, worn, weary, and cold, and had but one eye to see with. Even in the midst of feeling this way, he left for Esleben to try to help some people with a dispute over land, but on the journey, he became sick. His dear wife, Katie, was far away, but his two boys, Martin and Paul, were with him. The sickness grew, and Martin was fading. The dying reformer, Roused in his last words were, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He died February 18, 1546, at the age of 63. He faced many trials and difficulties in his life. Many times his foes of the gospel tried to condemn him to death and silence him, but God enabled Luther to continue in his work. Was Martin Luther's life a success? How would you gauge a successful life. Martin Luther knew what it meant to give all of his life for the work of ministry. He would serve wherever he could. He would 
have these table talk discussions. He would train pastors. He would continue to preach the gospel everywhere he was. Luther would pour himself out with every last drop of the work of the Reformation in Europe. We sit here in comfort, able to freely worship because of the tireless work of Martin Luther. So it made sense to me, at least, to end our series as Paul ends his ministry with the story of Martin Luther. 2 Timothy 4 are the last words recorded by the Apostle Paul. After writing most of the New Testament, Paul ends his ministry by encouraging Timothy to press on, to to finish the race. But I want you to chew on this question as I share from God's word this morning. What is a successful life? So I want to read the passage here this morning. If you haven't turned, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I want to encourage you to have a Bible open and, and ready. We're going to dwell in the scriptures this morning. So if you don't have a copy, you're going to get confused and lost. So we have some provided there in the chairs. We encourage you to take one if you don't have one and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's on page 936. If you're unfamiliar with reading a Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verses. And we're going to look at verses 6 through the end of the book, verse 22. So I'll read and then I'll pray. Starting in verse 6. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did great did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May I not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Anasiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was, at, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, and so does Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to worship you this morning. And we ask that you would allow your people to hear from your word this morning, to be instructed by you. Let the words of my heart and the meditation of my soul be acceptable to your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. The first thing I want to look at here is the foes of the gospel. The foes of the gospel. Relationships were important to Paul. People were important to him. And he would always mention people in his letters. And here in these final words of this letter, he mentions a number of people. But it also seems that Paul had no fear to publicly call out those who were a foe to the gospel. 
I don't know where your heart runs when you hear this or read this. I suspect it cringes when you see Paul naming names. But it doesn't come across bitter, but, but factual. Looking for your name. I, I remember when I played high school basketball, and when I actually got into the game for a minute, I would want to check the newspaper the next day just to see my name written down. You guys remember newspapers? Okay. <laughs> this is a list, though, of these foes where you wouldn't want to be listed. You wouldn't want to see your name listed. While some people can be wonderful sources of joy, they can also be a source of discouragement, and in comes discouraging Demas. Verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, the one who was closest to Paul for much of his journeys, is mentioned in Colossians 4 for accompanying Paul and in Philemon. Verse 24 is one of Paul's fellow workers. In both these passages, Demas is listed right there with Luke, and it seems positive every time. Now, Paul says Demas deserts him when he needed him most. The word deserted here means to utterly abandon and leave someone helpless in a dire situation. It means to leave behind, to discard, to throw away and turn around. And this is what Demas did to Paul. We're not sure when, perhaps in Rome, perhaps right after he got arrested. We don't know. And why did he leave? Paul says Demas was in love with this present world. Instead of loving Christ appearing, Demas loved the world. He had misplaced affections. He loved that which would pass away instead of loving that which was eternal. And when we have the wrong loves, we will live the wrong life. You cannot love this present world and God at the same time. You cannot be smitten with what is fading and live for what is eternal. And in Demas, though, is a double tragedy. Not only was Paul abandoned, but Demas had forsaken the goodness of the gospel. Two men, two men here suffered loss, but Demas's loss was much more lasting. Demas began well, but faithful service and zealous work do not guarantee the future. Demas had incredible potential, but following Jesus cost you. Remember the warning Jesus had in Luke 14, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Demas had incredible potential for the church, but when trouble came, he went. And he serves this morning us as a warning that we cannot rest on our past and assume our future. The way of the Christian is a way into suffering for the gospel. There's no way around it. And Christians endure to the end. The second foe of the gospel is Alexander in verses 14 and 15. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Demas was, was quiet opposition to the gospel, but Alexander was very much loud opposition. We're not sure who exactly Alexander is, it could be the same that was mentioned in 1 Timothy 1.20, where Paul says, Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that he may learn not to blaspheme. If so, he was regularly opposing Paul and his message. Alexander was a coppersmith by trade, and so he might have been an idol maker in the city. And here comes Paul cutting into his business. 
preaching the gospel that destroys his business. He also might have been the informer for Paul's second imprisonment. Alexander was a foe to the gospel, simply because he was against Paul, against his partners in the gospel, against the message of the gospel. Alexander had no spiritual sight to see, and Paul warns Timothy of him that he, he shouldn't be naive, but be wise in any dealings with him. And Jesus' words in Matthew 10 are true. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep into the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wicked men are like wolves seeking to destroy. Those that represent Christ must be expected to be hated by those that do not honor him. And Paul is warning Timothy to watch out, to be aware of him. Be aware of those that seek to destroy the message. But he never encourages Timothy to seek revenge. Instead, he reminds him, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Just as a preacher in, in, first, in 2 Timothy 4, 1, stands before God and all his words are heard by God, so the same for evil men. I'm sure I've shared the story here in the past of a farmer who was an atheist and would take delight in mowing his fields and plowing them during the church services because his property was right across the street. And so he would deliberately get on his tractor and, and, and just in time when services would begin and he would mow and plow his fields, plowing while they were in prayer, plowing while they sang songs of worship, plowing while the word was preached and he could do anything in his might to want to disrupt the services. And the summer went by and the harvest came in the fall and the man was an outspoken atheist and decided that he would write a letter to the local newspaper in which he would triumphantly write all summer long while those fools in church sang their songs and listened to some poor man dribble on, I was out here working the fields. God himself has not saw fit to punish me at all. In fact, while I have while I've wisely done the work to plow my fields and bring a harvest, it has been my largest crop as of yet. I have brought in much crops and those poor saps who rested one day a week. And he concluded his letter by saying, what do you say to that? Well, the editor of the paper decided to print his letter in full the next day, and at the very end of the article, he gave his response. God does not settle his accounts in October. God does not settle his accounts by our calendar. God will bring judgment. The Lord will repay according to their deeds. And I want to be clear this morning, church, God is better equipped to bring about judgment than you are. God loves justice. He's the author of justice. And we are better served in our lives to leave this up to God and not ourselves. It would serve our soul well by reminding ourselves that we are not God. And he knows our injustice and he will deal with it in his time, which is always perfect. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't believe this gospel, you need to understand that our God is an eternal God and God is all-knowing and he will settle accounts with you one day. Just because God hasn't settled his accounts with you for all of your past sins doesn't mean that it won't happen or that God has forgotten. Your sins have not vanished from existence. My sins have not vanished. But as a Christian, my sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So when God looks at me as a believer in Jesus Christ, he sees me in his son. 
and not in my sins. But take heed for those of you here who are not in Jesus Christ. God sees you in your sins and you have no covering if you're not in him. So how does God see you this morning? You will stand before God one day and you'll give an answer for your life. Have you lived like Demas or Alexander? See, Demas lived a good life, a seemingly holy life on the outside, but the inside, he was dead. Demas counted on all his good works to get him through, but eventually what was true inside of him became evident on the outside. He was a fake Christian. He deserted Paul, the church, the ministry, because he was in love with the world. Jonathan Edwards said, there are many people that seem to be converted that are not so really, don't rest in any appearance of grace. Paul might have originally believed that Demas was converted, but he didn't persevere. He abandoned the faith. Listen, friends, if you're here this morning and you're like Demas, your life will be found out. And I would implore you to turn to Christ. But maybe you're here this morning, you've lived like Alexander with no thought of God and his word, and thus you're no different and your end will be the same. Your life's pursuits will all rot. They will all corrode. They will not last. They will not stand. In fact, they'll stand as evidence against you on that day when you stand before God. God has heard, he has seen your life, and because God is perfectly just, he will answer justly and judge you in your sins. Friends, everyone here will stand before God and will stand before him as perfect judge or perfect father, and we want the second one for you. We want you to experience his fatherly goodness in your life. We want you to indulge in the goodness and greatness of our God this morning. We implore you to don't settle for the passing pleasures of this world. They are truly vanishing, falling through your fingers faster than you can put them there. They won't last, but friends, God will. And in grace and in love for you, he, he brought you here this morning to sit under the preaching of God's word and to be reminded again of who he is. And so I ask that you would repent and turn from your sins of trusting and relying on yourself and turn to Jesus Christ and believe in him. It is so much better to be counted a friend of God and a friend of the gospel rather than a foe. And Paul here in this passage goes to great lengths to leave a trail of names of those that serve God and serve the ministry well. Faithfulness and endurance are hallmarks of true followers of Jesus Christ. So as we transition from the foes of the gospel Secondly, we see the friends of the gospel. And you heard the names earlier when I read the passage, but there are 15 people listed here in these final verses of Paul's letter to Timothy. Paul never believed that he was by himself in ministry. Paul never wanted this mission to end with himself. He was always looking to pour himself out into other people. And in these last few lines, he wants to mention those that were friends of this glorious gospel. So I'm gonna walk through these names. Except for what little can be inferred from this brief mention, we know nothing about Crescens because he was sent to Galatia by Paul and did not flee as did Demas. He was obviously a faithful and dependable servant on Christ. Titus, on the other hand, was both known and faithful. 
Paul's letter to him was written several years after 1 Timothy and about a year before 2 Timothy. And besides here in the book that carries his name, Titus is mentioned by the apostle nine times in 2 Corinthians and twice in the book of Galatians. Titus was a builder and equipper, a man the apostle fully trusted to teach and pastor struggling churches. Luke had been a longtime companion of Paul, accompanying the apostle for many years over hundreds, perhaps thousands of miles. And it's easy to trace his direct association with the apostle through his use of the plural first-person pronouns in the book of Acts. He was with Paul at Troas and Philippi during the second missionary journey, joined him again at the end of the third missionary journey, and went with him to Jerusalem to face arrest and imprisonment. He accompanied Paul on his trip to Rome, was shipwrecked with him off the shores of Melita, ministered in Rome with him during the first imprisonment, and comforted him during the second and last. Luke was, in fact, a faithful friend. Mark, do you remember Mark? Do you remember what Paul thought of Mark? He didn't think too highly of him in Acts 12. When Barnabas wanted to bring him along for ministry, Paul stood against that because Mark had bailed before and was not faithful to the task. And Paul and Barnabas stood at odds. They didn't settle the dispute then, but both left with those that they trusted. So it's refreshing to see how Paul mentions Mark here in this letter. He says in verse 11, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. It is a great disappointment to see gifted servants of the Lord become disinterested in his work and shrink back from the demands and hardships of ministry, but it's a great satisfaction to see a person turn from his fears and selfish pursuits and wholeheartedly return to the work of the kingdom, and this is what we see in Mark. When we see his name and what is written here, we need to praise the Lord for what he does in people's lives. Moving on, perhaps Paul had sent Tychicus to Ephesus, which was located in the, in the man's home province of Asia, or it may be that Paul was sending him there to deliver this second letter to Timothy, just as he had used him to deliver his letters to the churches at Ephesus. There's no evidence that he was a teacher or pastor, but he was a valuable asset to Paul and a trusted friend. He was just willing to serve. Troas may have been the hometown of Carpus. He obviously lived there now. From the context, it seems Probable that Paul stayed with Carpus there and entrusted him with the care of several valuable possessions. Paul asked Timothy to visit Carpus and Troas to bring these few things. And I, and I love this section of the letter. First, he asked for the cloak, <clears throat> which is a large, heavy wool garment that would keep him warm in the cold weather that was coming. Second, though, he, he asked for books and parchments. They would provide no warmth for Paul, but they were invaluable to him for the sake of ministry. Books probably refers to scrolls, possibly the Old Testament books. Parchments were vellum sheets made of specifically treated animal hides. They were extremely expensive and therefore use, used for the most important of documents. Spurgeon said, and if you're not reading Spurgeon, you're really missing out. Spurgeon said, we do not know what the books were about and we can only form some guess as to what parchments were. Paul had a few books, perhaps wrapped in the cloak, and Timothy was to be careful to bring them. Even an apostle must read. How rebuked we are by the apostle. He is inspired, and yet he wants his books. He had been preaching at least 30 years, yet he wants his books. He has seen the Lord, and yet he wants his books. He had a wider experience than most men, and yet he wants his books. He had been caught up to the third heaven and had heard things 
which were unlawful for men to utter, and yet he wants his books. He had a major part in writing the New Testament, yet he wants his books. The apostle says to Timothy, and so he says to every creature, give thyself under reading. Brethren, what is true of ministers is true of all people. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will of all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritan writers and the expositions of Scripture. We are quite persuaded that the very best way for you to spend your leisure is either to be reading or praying. You may get much instruction from books, which afterwards you may use as a true weapon in your Lord and Master's service. And Paul cries, bring the books, join the cry. We need to be known as readers. Here's Paul in prison, not able to, to minister as he'd like to preach and teach. And what will he do if his time? He can't preach. What will he do? He will read. It's said of fishermen of old and their boats that if they're not out on the sea, where do you find them? Back mending their nets. So if providence has laid you out, friend, on your bed sick, and you can't teach or preach or do the things you desire, mend your nets in private by continuing to read and study. Let the Apostle Paul be an encouragement to you, friends, to get books and read. And I have plenty in my office to share. Last here in this section, Paul did not fail to remember old friends. He had met Prisca and Aquila at Corinth on a second missionary journey in his letter to the Roman church. The apostle greeted Prisca and Aquila, his fellow workers in Christ Jesus in Romans 16, thus indicating that these two special friends were again living and ministering in Corinth, the city from which the epistle was written. And earlier in this letter, Paul expressed appreciation for the household of Onesiphorus, who had often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. And because the household is mentioned in both places, it's possible that everyone in this household was a Christian, perhaps led to Christ by an Onesiphorus himself. And then Erastus, who remained at Corinth, probably the city treasurer of Corinth, who sends greetings through Paul to the church at Rome. He also may have been the man whom the apostles sent with Timothy to minister in Macedonia. And Trophimus, he's a native of the province of Asia, specifically the city of Ephesus, and he accompanied Paul from Greece to Troas. And final greetings are extended on behalf of Eubulus and Pudens and Linus, all three names were Latin, perhaps indicating that the, that the men were from Italy and had been members of the church in Rome. And then Claudia, a faithful believer and a close friend of Paul about whom we know nothing else. And now you, you may wonder, why are these names mentioned in this sacred text? Why, why would he go to this length? God give us in, in, in the Bible for these names. Paul evidently loved people. He, he lived in the company of Christian friends and he was always giving greetings to congregations from friends and from friends to congregations. His, his life was lived in the company of fellow Christians. And friends, you won't finish the Christian life well if you separate yourself from the company of believers, especially the local body of, of Christians in a congregation here. God did not make us to go alone. We need one another. And Paul is an example of this. Another reason the mission of God that he has for the church for his own glory is, is to raise up people of which he uses. Flesh and blood humans that God redeems and then sends out. These names listed here at the end of this letter are proof that 
man is God's method to reach the lost with the gospel. And every person on earth contributes either to the strengthening of the church and the spread of the gospel or the weakening of the church and diminishing of the gospel. There's no neutral position. So which one are you working towards? On which side would your name be listed? Strengthening the church or weakening the church? So we've seen the foes of the gospel, the friends of the gospel, last is the fruit of the gospel. I purposely left the first few verses of this passage for the end because in it we see the fruit of the gospel in the life of Paul. Look back to verse six. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. It's a very dangerous thing to be young and healthy. Because we begin to believe that we are unbreakable, unbeatable, that we will live forever. We are all dying. Every day passes is a day closer to death. I suppose the thought that death is something we probably shouldn't talk about in public seems to be a taboo topic. Death, dying. No one wants to hear those words. No one seems anxious to jump into that conversation. Departing this world, dying, that is a conversation stopper. You want to get out of an awkward conversation with your neighbors? Bring up death. Are we afraid to talk about death? You know, if you lived 400 years ago, you couldn't go a week without talking about death or possibly seeing death. Not all of us have seen a dead person or even slept in a house with someone dying. Now, death is taken out and is professionalized. Death is sanitized today. When you're sick, when you're dying, you are taken to the hospital or another facility to be treated, but not so in Martin Luther's time. Death was present. You couldn't escape the discussion of death. The smell of death, the thought of death, the screams of death, it was all around. I believe we don't talk about death enough. In fact, when I was a kid in the Midwest, many churches had the cemetery right outside. So when you came in, you walked by death as a reminder that our time on earth is fading. And here in verse six, Paul is talking about his impending death. He knows that he will not live through this time in prison. The end is coming and he's preparing Timothy for his departure. 
He, he talks about the process already beginning. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The image of sacrifice that Paul uses draws from the Old Testament sacrificial system. Every Jew would, would know what he's meaning here. When there was a, a burnt offering, the bull was the main part of the, of the sacrifice, but sometimes there was a little, an even unimportant supplement added to that sacrifice. It was a little oil or a little wine that was poured out onto the altar, and thus the drink offering was added to the burnt offering. Now, Paul isn't saying that his life and offering to that on the same level of Christ, no way. No, Christ is a sacrifice in the altar. Paul, though, is likening himself only to that little wine or oil poured out as a supplement to it, not necessarily to, to its perfection, but it's tolerated, it's allowed. This drink offering was considered a way of offering further thankfulness. And Paul is resolved to show his thankfulness to Christ for his life on his behalf. And then Paul adds this phrase at the end of verse 6. He says, the time of my departure has come. It's a beautiful sentence here. The word for departure means literally to unloose. Speaking that of taking down a tent or pulling up an anchor to leave. And it's a beautiful way to talk about his hour of death. I think of an image of a ship pulling up the anchor so that it loosens its moorings when it's about to be put out to sea. Paul feels himself like that ship sitting at the harbor for just a little while. But now the time has come to pull up the anchor and he's going to be really free. And he's going to be launched upon a real voyage now. And he knew right where that voyage would take him. Into the fair havens of the port of peace, into a better country where the Lord is. Friends, a Christian never really dies. They depart. Paul longed for this final voyage home. He says to the Philippians, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ. And why, Paul? Because he says it's far better. This was Paul's dream, to finally go home. Christian, heaven is our home, our true home, and it's real. It's a good thing to believe in a place you've never been, but it's a better thing to get there in the end. And there's better things yet to arrive at home and feast with your friends. And this is what Paul longed for, to be reunited with his Lord. Paul says in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This present situation held no fears for Paul. It was pure triumph if you look back over his life. Paul had begun his ministry on the road of Damascus 30 years earlier, and after his time in the desert, he traveled the ancient world on three missionary journeys. The fourth journey ended in Rome, and he said everything. Everything was all for God's glory. He battled false teachers and false teaching with his own people and even against rulers of Rome, and he, he suffered amazing dangers but in the midst of it, was able to say, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
Paul was able to look back over his life and say, I have fought the good fight, which in the Greek perfect tense, it means I have fought it, it is complete, forever done. And can you picture this now? This war-torn apostle writing this letter from a hole in the ground, a prison in Rome. It is done. And then he says, I have finished the race. And I love how simply he says this. He doesn't say he won the race. He says he finished the race. Years earlier, this was what he told the Ephesian elders of his desire to, to finish his course. And now he could triumphantly say, I have finished it. Friends, we all have a race to run. And the author of Hebrews reminds us to run with endurance the race that lies before us. We, we all run, and we do this well when we remember those that have run before us and when we fix our eyes on the king, our victorious king, Jesus. And then last in verse 7, he says, I have kept the faith. He's probably emphasizing his role as the steward of sound doctrine. He was a guardian of the gospel. If you remember earlier, Paul told Timothy, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching. And then in the first letter, he says, guard what has been entrusted to you. And Paul had held on to the truth and passed it on to Timothy and to others also. And we have a fight in this world and a race to run and we're to hold on to faith, which has been passed down to us. And then Paul continues in verse eight, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. This is not a crown of glory or a crown of peace or a crown of joy, but the crown of righteousness. Jesus Christ had already given Paul his righteousness when Paul believed, and now he gives him the ultimate crown of righteousness, the ultimate permanent state of righteousness. Gordon Fee says, one receives the final crown of righteousness precisely because one has already received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So why does he say the crown of righteousness instead of crown of glory? Because righteousness is the greatest need we have as sinful humans. It is a singular thing we cannot do for ourselves. And this crown isn't just reserved for Paul. No, he says to all who loved his appearing. Christians are people who love Jesus Christ. And because they love Jesus Christ, they long for his appearing. We long to be united with him in heaven, worshiping him for all of eternity. Do you love his appearing? Do you long for it? That's the question that is begging for an answer this morning, friends. Do you love his appearing? Do you, do you ache for it? If so, there is a crown of righteousness reserved for you on that day. The fruit of the gospel will also bring confidence in God. Paul writes later in, in verse 16, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. The Roman judicial process initially involved what was called a first action a preliminary defense hearing before the emperor, roughly equivalent in purpose to a grand jury hearing. And evidently, this defense was a solo event for Paul. There was no witness or advocate standing before him or on his behalf. No one was there at all. And we must believe that Luke or Tychicus were serving in other areas, perhaps hadn't arrived in Rome yet. 
but no member of the Roman church stepped up. No one. And yet Paul doesn't wish ill on them. He says, may it not be charged against them. No bitterness, no anger, no malice. See, it's easy to bear a grudge, but that isn't the way of Christ. And how much he displayed his life in Christ. But Paul really wasn't alone. He says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. The Lord would make sure his message would come to those that he willed to hear it and God would protect Paul. And so he says, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. The lion's mouth is perhaps Satan who lies behind all schemes against the gospel and God's servants. He is called the roaring lion seeking to devour God's people in Peter's epistle. Paul's greatest concern though was not himself, but the message, the gospel. In front of large crowds before judges and emperors, Paul would publicly declare the gospel. He didn't fear men because he preached before God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. And when you recognize that you ultimately stand before God only, you are freed from the fear of man. And Paul stood confident in Christ, which is the fruit of the gospel. You see here in this book, everything that the apostle thought was connected to Christ, how he concentrated every passion, every power, and every thought, and every act, and every word, and set his heart on Jesus Christ. Well, this should be the way for the Christian life. There are some who only think of Jesus on Sunday, or in the morning, or on Easter, or Christmas, and they scatter their love from thing to thing, or person to person, or activity, but are not wholly focused on Jesus Christ. But the Christian life should be like that of Paul with our motive to serve Christ and all that we have. As we come to the end of this letter, it's just the apostle discipling his protege. He's filling him in on ministry, what it's been for him, and more importantly, what he wants his friend to do, and, and really, he wants him to come. I love the sincerity of Paul. He wants his friend to come. He wants his books, his scriptures, a warm coat, and a good friend. He can see his life coming to an end. I wonder if Paul was surprised the way his life was ending. I wonder if in his early years of ministry, he would see himself as an old man sitting in a jail alone. What about you? Are you where you thought you would be at this time in your life? Maybe you're feeling directionless. Maybe you're surprised that you're already married with kids or that it took this long. Or maybe you sit single thinking it's taking too long. Perhaps you're surprised that you attend church at all. You never planned on being at church. Or perhaps you're realizing how rarely you attend church. Maybe you've recently experienced a terrible bereavement or physical pain. Perhaps you're here maybe feeling prosperous. If you are, be careful, friend. Good circumstances are like a fog. They tend to cloud your perception. 
There are no guarantee of good circumstances in our life. So be careful not to convince yourself you're following God when really you're doing nothing of the sort. Is Paul where you think he should be at the end of his life? Sitting there alone in prison? Would you count him successful? At this point, Paul had been laboring for about 30 years as an evangelist. In these last words from his pen, he professes to have taught, lived, purposed, believed, had patience, loved, endured, been persecuted, suffered, been rescued, fought the fight, finished the race, and kept the faith. And now, now he's being poured out, and he's ready to depart. He is certain the Lord will bring him safely to heaven. According to tradition, a few months, weeks, or even days after writing this letter, the emperor Nero gave his verdict on Paul, and Paul was taken to one of the main roads leading to Rome, and his head was cut off from his body. Nero had passed one verdict on Paul, while Christ passed another. So I ask, was Paul's life successful? How can we know if our church is successful this last year? How can I know if my ministry was successful this last year? How can you determine if you were successful this past year? What if your body is aging and your health is failing or you're separated from your family and friends? What if your employment was recently terminated or your bank account is empty? What if you're cold and imprisoned or in danger of losing your life? Are you a success? What if you're born in a barn or your father died when you were young or never, you never settled on a career, you never married, you never had a family? What if you were executed as a terrorist long before you reached the age of 40? Then could you consider yourself a success? Answer that and I will tell you if you've understood the book of 2 Timothy or if you've understood life. Keeping the faith, protecting the gospel, Finishing the race. That is what makes a successful life. And I pray that that will be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your continued presence in our lives. You are a good God. We thank you this morning for your word, especially for the book of 2 Timothy how it has been a treasure to myself and to our church family these past few months. Thank you for your care for us by giving this, your word. Help us to be faithful to you, God, keeping our faith grounded in you, protecting the gospel. Help us to allow to finish this race with joy. Father, we long to depart from this world and to join you in eternity. Jesus, come quickly. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.